0: How are you doing today?
1: Great. It's so good to record with you in person.
0: You sound exhausted, bro. Uh, exhausted or very unexcited. Yeah, I'm cool excited, but exhausted. <laughs> okay, I was about to say this is the first time yeah we've actually recorded in person in like what? Literal months. Right. Like, yeah, it's it, been months. Is it the first time we've done that this year? Maybe? I might it might be. I'm not sure. It's a lot, either way. But yeah, it's good to like be back in person and be able to like actually talk about this stuff face-to-face. And uh, today we're going to be in, uh, what you call it, Doctrine and Covenant section uh, 71 through uh, 75. But before we go ahead and get started on that, I want to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry. In, the, in all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So by way of uh, introduction and background, uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 71 through 74, at least a couple of the sections are dealing with the proper response that the Lord wants to, that the Lord wants the saints to have against the uh, quote unfriendly feelings that are existing in the spaces that the saints occupy, namely the ones that exist because of the writings of Ezra Booth, who uh, had published several letters that you know defamed the church. And uh, the Lord's response to that is uh, rather interesting. But basically, this is the subject of uh, Section 71, as well as Section, I think it is 73, or at least mentioned in 73. Uh, Derek, do you have any additional context you want to provide before we dive in?
1: No, other than this seems really relevant, because what was ringing in my head were things like the CES letter and other online sources of challenges for our church. Mm Mm-hmm and i think this is really relevant
0: absolutely yeah and i find it uh very interesting the uh, course that the lord elected to take in light of all of this uh it's not at all how i would have thought to have dealt with you know an apostate or to deal with you know uh what do you call it just i guess Anti-Mormonism, like this is like one of the first instances of anti-Mormonism that we have recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants here, and I just feel like the Lord, or how the Lord chooses to deal with it, is uh, very interesting. So we're going to start in uh, 71. I think you got something to say first, starting in verse 1, Derek. We can can talk a little bit more about this later, but uh, what do you have at the start of section 71?
1: Right, if you look at verse 1, it prioritizes the scriptures. A lot of Latter-day Saints culturally might think of la well we've got a living prophet we can get just get magic updates whenever we want we don't need the scriptures anymore but if you look at it joseph and sydney were tied to the scriptures by the lord it says in verse 1 that you should open your mouths in proclaiming my gospel the things of the kingdom expounding the mysteries thereof out of the scriptures according to that portion of spirit and power which shall be given unto you, even as I will. And what I take from this is that we always, even the leaders, must be in dialogue with the scriptures. Even Jesus was in dialogue with with the scriptures when he taught, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Even though he could just spout words of the Lord whenever he wanted to, by definition, he still engaged the scriptures and challenged himself and others to be accountable to the scriptures absolutely and That's that's I think something that we can learn from this is like how Do the prophets and the Apostles use the scriptures? How do they lean on them? How do they make themselves accountable to the scriptures? I love how in Acts 17 verse 11 the uh, Saints in Berea held Paul accountable to the scriptures. They searched the scriptures every day trying to see if what Paul was teaching them was true. So we talked all, I always talk about the power of the scripture, so I don't really need to say much more about that now, but I think
0: <laughs> if you don't want to, I mean, I love this conversation
1: particularly out of all Blair Ostler's five, uh, sources of theology, the standard Wesleyan quadrilateral is scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. And to those four Blair Osler adds the fifth, the Holy spirit. And out of all five of those, I strongly lean most on scripture, of course. Mm -hmm. That's where I, that's my go-to.
0: I really like that you pointed out that even the Savior uh, deferred to scripture and held Mm -hmm. himself accountable Mm -hmm. to scripture. Mm -hmm. We see this fairly early in his uh, ministry with his, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, his isolation in the desert. He deferred to scripture several times in dialogue with Satan when uh, when he introduced himself and formally began his ministry. He did so with scripture, right? And uh, when he went to, and when he, you know, defended himself from, uh, you know, the naysayers, uh, you know, the scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. I, I'm always kind of like, I, I, I'm always careful how I use that word Pharisee. I'm never sure if I'm using it appropriately or not, uh, particularly when I know that we got uh, Jewish listeners. But, um, you know, anytime he. He was always in dialogue with the scriptures when he had to, you know, deal with people who were Mm -hmm. taking issue with him. So I just really like that you brought that part up in addressing or rather in acknowledging that even Jesus deferred to scripture. When it came time to, uh, you know, to preach the gospel, to dialogue with other people, to defend the faith and to actually teach people what he needed them to do. Um, so I'm just really glad you brought that up because it really highlights uh the importance of regularly being in dialogue with the scriptures, especially in our you know our different contexts in our present contexts
1: yeah, like one of these puzzles this is pro- this is part of the part of the problem if I don't prepare, then I have all these thoughts that I didn't narrow down that I didn't <laughs> think of until just right now uh-huh is looking at how jesus taught and how people today teach like you hear this all the time oh it'll all work out somehow right I don't like that and here's the thing though like when did anyone come up to Jesus in need in need of food in need of healing in need of something and Jesus told them oh it'll all work out like is there I can't Mm. even think of a time where someone came up to him with a concrete need and Jesus said oh it'll all work out somehow no, he actually ministered to the one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is one exception that I might be able to think of, and it's in Matthew chapter 10 when the apostles say to him, well, we've left you know, our houses and families and all this other stuff. And he said, well, there isn't anyone who hasn't left families that won't receive a hundredfold in the world to come, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not the same thing. I think, is some of these other things um, where people come to him with a need for food, for example. He doesn't say, whoops, well, you'll get food later. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how little people care about LGBTQs. If Mm. they say, oh, well, it'll all work out somehow, Mm. you can tell that they're not teaching with the authority of Christ.
0: Absolutely. We do this with LGBTQ folks. We do this as well with uh, those in poverty. Mm -hmm. We do this Mm -hmm. with, uh, you know... I mean, we do this with all kinds of people on the margins, telling them about how things are going to work out in the end. And it's almost always an excuse to not act, to not right. do something, to not live into the discipleship that Christ has called us to. Mm-hmm. It's very uncomfortable. We, I mean, we see people doing this even now, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially with the preaching of... Milk toast sermons and sanctimonious trivialities like unity and love, and these are very easy things to perform, yeah. not so much easy things to uh, practice. Uh, but again, this is all to say that oftentimes this little it'll all work out in the end. Thing when we talk about things as complex as uh, you know being widowed or being single or being LGBTQ or being any other population on the margins that does not have. Uh, concrete solutions to their issues in this life we cannot use that as an excuse we can't we can't use that as an excuse to not try to do what Jesus would do to you know alleviate the stress that whatever those identities bring into people's lives you're totally right Jesus never did that in his ministry and um, I think it's very important that we consider how Jesus responded to people with concrete needs when you know, LGBTQ folks talk to us about their needs or when anybody mm-hmm, else on the mm-hmm. margins talks to us about uh, their particular needs. I hope we live more directly into that.
1: Yeah, it's really tough because I think I might have made this point last week, but it's about, I think there's a lot of people who want to be allies and they want to hold power and use their power to do the right thing rather than share the power. Right. Which would make, Which would make the whole thing so much easier, right? Right. And I see this in Facebook groups where straight admin want to learn to do the right thing and they want to get educated so that they can fairly enforce stuff. I'm like, why do you want to be the one to make those decisions? To make the the judgment call whether something is homophobic or not? Why do you want to have the last word on this? Why do you want to have the authority over whether uh, something is too homophobic for the group or not right that is yeah maybe you would do a good job of it with it if you had more training and understanding but the fact that they want to retain that control is is a uh, is a challenge i think and it's not really the christ-shaped path
0: mm. i have a question that i was asking throughout this section and that i'd like to discuss a little bit um The lord's response to the likes of ezra booth particularly the injunction to go and preach the gospel that he i believe gives in uh, verse 4 he says labor labor ye in my vineyard call upon the inhabitants of the earth bear record prepare the way for the commandments and revelations which are to come um the lord is basically telling them and you know he says this in verse verse 2 as well proclaim unto the world in the regions round about and in the church also for the space of a season Even until it shall be made known unto you." Basically, the Lord's response to these issues is to go about preaching the gospel. And I wanted to put it up to you, Derek, Uh, why do you think the Lord's solution to this particular problem at this point in the church's history was to go and preach the gospel? Well, what we know from the historical record is that they were very busy
1: in the Bible translation project, Joseph Mm -hmm. and Sidney, and that was taking up, I imagine, a lot of their time a lot of their effort a lot of their energy and i think putting a pause on that to go out and have a public face does a number of things one is preaching the gospel builds enthusiasm and power and gives a context for the infiltration of the spirit into this world right uh-huh. and so preaching the gospel missionary work is good for both the missionaries to build their faith and also to build the faith of those who are hearing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something beautiful about our theology in that we articulate our... Most other churches have a pre-existing theology that they then convert people to. They mm-hmm. they um, articulate their theology and then try to convert people to it, whereas we typically... Artic- our articulate our theology in the process of trying to convert people. That's how mm-hmm. we f- wrestle with stuff. That's how we figure out stuff. That's how we get new revelations, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the process of preaching actually changes the church and improves it and refines it and strengthens it by the what it does to the people who preach and by the people that it brings in. I don't know if that makes sense. It's kind of counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. But I think the other facet of this is that the preaching is actually directed publicly towards responding to the challenges. If you look at verse 7 and 8, it says, Wherefore, confound your enemies, and this is both publicly and in private, right? Because that's what it says. Mm -hmm. Confound your enemies, call upon them to meet you both in public and in private, and inasmuch as ye are faithful... Their shame shall be made manifest. Hmm. Wherefore, let them bring forth their strong reasons against the Lord. I think that is so, so beautiful that the Lord doesn't tell them to run from these challenges, mm-hmm. but to go straight into them and be a publicly accountable for their answers. It literally says there publicly, uh, public, mm-hmm. that they should be publicly accountable. And I love how this reminds me of. Elijah and the priests of Baal in 1st Kings 18 mm. very famous story where they have this show off a uh, showdown of who can uh, Show off right right Whose uh, God is real yes, and uh, that's the God. That's the living God of the Bible That's the living God of the restoration and that's the God who's behind us We mm. have nothing to be afraid and that's really what a lot of the DNC in, is about is not being afraid Mm-hmm But it seems like a lot of people want to speak on behalf of the Brethren. A lot of middle managers are like nope, the Brethren are too busy. They're not gonna make a YouTube video about the CES letter. They're not gonna go on John DeLynn's thing. I really think that one of the best things President Nelson could do if he wants to stem the losses in the church is to go on John DeLynn's thing and talk for 15 hours. (laughs) Seriously. That would be interesting. Seriously, I think that you would be tough. President Nelson would be in the hot seat and have a lot of hard questions to answer. Mm-hmm. But he's the prophet of the Lord. Like if the prophet of the Lord can go into the lion's den, mm-hmm. right, and come out okay, I think President Nelson should do the same thing. mmm Doesn't that sound weird though? It's like, oh, that's
0: unthinkable. But that's what, that's literally what Joseph and Sidney did. It's basically the divine equivalent of come debate me, bro. Like, it's just, I like having read this, I knew that this existed, but I kind of forgot how bold, like, the injunction was. Like, the Lord is literally telling Joseph and Sidney, tell them to come. Like, yeah, it Tell says them to, let them yes. bring
1: forth their strong reasons against the Lord. Right, it's does not it doesn't say don't. It doesn't say hide. It doesn't say we'll try to bury them online. It doesn't say mm-hmm. try to just skip over that and ignore it. Mm-hmm. I think we've got a lot of disaffection in the church, and a lot of this could be refined in the crucible of this confrontation. Mm. Let me talk a little bit uh, to you about Martin Luther. All right. So Martin Luther said uh, very famously that the devil is the best teacher of theology. Now, it sounds very counterintuitive because (laughs) you're not learning the devil's doctrines, but Uh what you're doing is the devil puts you in a tough spot, and when you're in a tough spot, that's where you do your best theology. Yeah. Yeah. That's where you reach out to God. That's where you're humbled and you don't lean on your own strength. That's when you turn to the scriptures most. So I need more devil in my life, right? I need mm. to to uh, have more devil in my life so that I have a, a, an excuse to be driven to the scriptures every day even more than I do. Mm-hmm. Here's what Luther said. For as soon as God's word takes root and grows in you, the devil will harry you. And will make a real doctor of you. And by doctor we mean teacher. And by his assaults will teach you to seek and love God's word. I think that's totally what happens. Like we do our best theology when we're backed up against a wall. This is how Joseph did it. Mm -hmm. And I think confronting the strong reasons Will be for everyone's benefit, right? Mm, yeah. There may be things that President Nelson has to uh, has to wrestle with and has to do some better theology on, and holding holding him accountable is what gives you a bulletproof faith,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? If it's untested and untried, it's it's going to be weak and it's going to fall apart. But if it's mm-hmm. survived the worst that John DeLynn can dish out there now. I'm I'm not a fan of John Delynn, by the way. Okay, I'm just putting it there. Like, but um, there are some conversations that need to be had publicly, and this is exactly what DNC71 says. Mm-hmm. Let me quote one more from a, a a German Lutheran theologian in the 1600s. His name was Johann Gerhard. He said, "When the Lord sends upon us cross and tribulation." This is, this in no way is a sign of his wrath. Rather, it is an indication of his fatherly love and gracious benevolence. Just as one can see this in Christ. He was God's most beloved son, and at the same time, his entire life on earth was nothing other than constant cross and tribulation. Again, basically, Johann Gerhard is saying, look, just because you experience cross and tribulation doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. In fact, God's most beloved son got all of it, right? And so mm-hmm. um, put yourself in that boat. And I think this is the same thing here is, is we are going to have tr- cross and tribulation, and we shouldn't run away from it. It mm-hmm. will refine us. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk a little bit about Liberace. So he was a Liberace. very famous especially at the time, I don't really hear people talk about him much now or listen to him anymore, but he was a very important showman, uh, musician. He didn't he played the piano well, but he didn't sing very well, according to my standards. And the irony is, he was good, but it, good in the way that the crowds liked, not good in the way that the music musical critics liked. The mm-hmm. musical critics would have wanted a more reserved and restrained and dignified performance. Mm-hmm. And these these uh, music critics would would write these reviews and saying how how not cool he was, and Liberace's response was, "What you said hurt me so much, I cried all the way to the bank," <laughs> because he literally got millions and millions and millions of dollars. He was a mm-hmm. rock star without the rock. He was very very successful his concerts would give him hundreds and th- hundreds of thousands each concert. He would make lots and lots of money. Mm. And people would say, oh, but there's this, and they would criticize him, and they would criticize his style and his his uh, really campy, over-the-top outfits, which should have clued everyone in to the fact that he was gay. I don't know. He didn't hide it very well. <laughs> like, if you have a long fur train with diamonds and robe, you, like... He looks more like a bride than the best bride in the world, (laughs) right? But anyway, my point is, he just looked at them and said, yeah, go ahead, say what you want, but I'm sitting on my millions. And that's how I feel. Like, when people criticize me, I'm going to say, I cried all the way to the bank. Now, that my bank isn't money, earthly money. I'm storing up my treasures in heaven. But when I think about my the people who attack me and criticize me and try to say something into my reputation, like when I think about it, yeah, they're treating me the same way that they treated Christ. I imagine, you know, I think I'm not a good Christian if, if there isn't someone that wakes up that day and, and wants to kill me for, for the justice (laughs) that I'm speaking. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I've said a lot. What are your reactions to all this? Well, I was thinking, uh, I'm going to, have to back up a little bit and go in order Um, my bishop actually made this observation last Sunday and I really liked it coming back to uh, this idea of what's happening in 71 why the Lord responded in this particular way what we're going to see in a few sections and I won't spend too much time on this because uh, the unfolding of this story is probably going to be expounded on uh, later in these sections But uh, when the Lord decides to address the likes of Ezra Booth in such a direct manner and also uh, encourages the elders to preach the gospel, he's also uh, speaking or giving this commandment into a pattern that we've seen in the uh, New Testament and that we've seen in the uh, Book of Mormon as well. Mm -hmm. We've seen um, there's almost always at a time of hardship for the church, especially when the church seems to be unraveling, which is going to happen in Ohio, um, there's always the Lord's solution, always seems to be a new inbreaking of uh revelation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and an inbreaking of new talent mm. through the form of uh through the form of converts. Um, we're going to see that uh, you know, again later in this story of the church that uh, eventually the doors are going to be open to England and then we mm. are going to get an influx of new converts that are going to, in essence, uh, be a big part of the, you know, the building up of Zion, the building up of church, of the, of the church. Um, by the time we get to Utah, by the time uh, President John Taylor's the president or whatever, we're going to have a significant uh, European immigrant population in uh, the state of Utah. Like, it's going to be a good quarter of the population in Utah. That's how mi- That's how much immigrants, immigrant converts, uh specifically european immigrant converts are going to have an effect on uh, the church we saw this again in the new testament with the day of pentecost we saw this with the anti-nephi lehi's in uh, the book of mormon just converts seem to be the key to saving a fledgling church and you know i look at how we operate today and just exactly how much i would love to see just an influx of new converts that would breathe a new kind of life into this church. Um, We have talked about how the preaching of the word within our church at present is basically the same. And, you know, there's validity to repetition. Like, I want to make Mm -hmm. space for that. Like, every general conference, we hear a lot of similar messages. And, you know, I have nothing against uh, repetition. I do want to hear something groundbreaking i do want to have new teachings that are relevant to the times that we're living in today especially where lgbtq issues racism the place of women in the church and you know more are concerned i think we stand to gain a lot if we are able to put in positions of uh, power and if not positions of power at least positions of uh magnification people who already represent those populations right i don't hear enough women at general conference. I don't hear any queer voices at general conference that I know of. I don't hear enough black voices at general conference and I don't hear them like enough anywhere, especially at a time where we urgently, urgently need some something when it comes to addressing racism. I like, what I could do and what the church could do with an influx of black converts, like black American converts specifically. And um, I feel like a lot of the salvation of the church is going to come through uh, these marginalized groups, but there aren't nearly Mm -hmm. enough of us to make Mm -hmm. that happen. Mm -hmm. And um, for the church to remain relevant, and more importantly, and specifically for the church to be on the forefront as the Restored Church of Christ on these issues that are most urgent, we need to be led by the people most directly affected by our most urgent issues. And at present, that is not what's happening. So I don't know what it's going to take. I'm not going to pretend to know right now. I have given a lot of thought to it. But I do feel like a big part of it is going to be, one, found in relinquishing a lot of that power or divesting some of that power to groups on the margins. And then as eventually being able to turn more of that power over to the margins when because of that divestment, we are able to bring more people on the margins into the church. So I do see there is a certain power in what the Lord is doing here because of how this is ultimately going to benefit the church as it has in the book of Mormon. And as it's going to, as we're going to see in the doctrine and covenants. Um, So yeah, all this to say, I want to see more. I want to see an influx of new converts on the margins Into the church because, again, we've seen what that has done for the church in the past.
1: Yeah, and real quick, I want to tie this back into Crash Theory. And for people that don't know what I'm talking about, go to tinyurl.com slash crash theory, all one word. And it looks like at every pivotal decision moment in the history of the church, we're at our best when we go option three, right? Like. Mm The Kirtland Bank fell apart. We picked up and, and changed our story and did something else. Like Independence, Missouri didn't work out. Nauvoo didn't work out. They invested a lot of time, energy, and money into the into Nauvoo, and they abandoned it and went option three. Rather than sticking there and trying to make it work, option one, or just giving up on the gospel altogether, option two, they decided to uh, tell their story a little bit differently and transfer mm-hmm. the concept of Zion elsewhere. I think the groundbreaking revelations in 1890 and 1978 were vo- both very clearly option three options. They had, mm-hmm. they were confronted a crash and realized, you know what, we got to tell the story differently. Yeah, what we thought for hundreds of years was essential to the gospel. Well, actually that's not essential. You put either polygamy or the exclusion of people of African descent from the temple and priesthood like people thought those were essential to the story but the crash told them you know what that's actually not essential and i think people will soon quickly realize that the discrimination based on gender which uh affects women and affects trans people and it affects queer people all this business around gender is not essential to the gospel Mm. the 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 discrimination around gender is not essential to the gospel and the crash tells us that people will say oh male and female male and female i want them to take that male and female and shove it up their galatians three twenty-eight where it belongs
0: <laughs> galatians three twenty-eight.
1: paul says very clearly Uk any arson thelu." there is no male and female mm. that's literally what it says in christ there is no male and female That is the teaching of the church. That is the teaching of an apostle of the Lord. All are alike unto God. People say, oh, the church's teachings. Have you noticed that people use the quote, the church's teachings as a euphemism for their anti gay opinions? It is
0: almost always. Like, they'll never say,
1: they'll never say, like, I'm defending the exclusion of gay people. They'll never say, I'm defending the sole legitimacy of straight marriage. They'll Mm -hmm. say, I'm defending the church's teachings. Mm hmm. And I think it's because they're actually ashamed to say what they're defending. Oh, absolutely, right? Absolutely. They don't want to say I'm defending discrimination. They'll just hide behind quote the churches I'm defending the church's teachings our church's teachings are that all are alike unto God and that there is no male and female mm-hmm. So That's a crash that we're realizing the what we thought was the case is not sustainable mm-hmm. and we're going to as, as certainly as the Lord is living, we will, we will get that fixed. Mm. Speaking of gender, I want to go on and talk real quickly about verse 9 because I'm taking a lot of time. See, I didn't plan very well, and now we're—where are we on time? Oh,
0: we're only at half an hour. We're fine. Oh,
1: okay. Well, we're, don't ever tell me we're fine on time because uh, <laughs> that could lead to a big problem
0: we are still in section 71 we're still in the first section i know i know
1: (laughs) but anyway so here's verse 9 it says verily thus saith the lord unto you there is no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper and this comes from isaiah 54 almost verbatim isaiah 54 verse 17 no weapon formed against you shall prosper now here's a pop quiz for you hebrew Because, of course, I went back and read this in Hebrew. Hebrew has multiple ways of saying the word you. Not only is there singular you and plural you, Mm -hmm. there's also feminine and masculine you. So you can have feminine singular, masculine singular, feminine plural, and feminine singular you. When When Isaiah says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, guess which that you is? is it feminine it is feminine interesting it is feminine because in this section of Isaiah God is speaking to uh, God's people and God's people are personified as a woman who is unable to bear children hmm and speaking to her Jesus says I'm uh, not sorry uh, the Lord says through Isaiah no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and this is tied up into the hope regarding the um, post-exile Israelite community. That mm-hmm. yeah, that all this stuff, you'll be restored, you'll be back in right relationship with God, your sins will be forgiven, all this other stuff. Though you were suffering, God will will. It's only for a little time, and God, you'll be back in communion with God, and everything's gonna be all right. And God's got your back, and you. Uh, this woman nothing formed against no weapon that is formed against you feminine singular shall prosper so what's interesting is that when leaders of the church put themselves in the place of this you here that is sidney and joseph and any other church leader who wants to apply this promise to them has to metaphorically gender themselves female hmm. And I think that's really beautiful, right? The way that the Lord plays with gender here, the way that we are expected to transgress gender boundaries in order to partake of the promises of God.
0: Hmm.
1: Like they now that's that's now now when I say something like that, that's when they're gonna be begging me for to say there's no male and female again, right? <laughs> right? So they're they're not gonna be able to have their cake and eat it too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I just love how when you look at the symbols that God uses, a lot of them transgress our expectations, our understanding of a gender. And I find that really beautiful. All right. So that's all I have to say for section 71.
0: Section 71 at the 35-minute mark. Let's go ahead and move on to... Uh, Section 72 then you got anything for 72.
1: I just had one really brief note. This is about the uh, stewardship of property and Tithing and consecration and other things Mm -hmm. what I've noticed is that accountability is a Gospel value Mm -hmm. and it's a gospel virtue if you look at verses 5 16 and 19 It talks about people needing to be able to render an account Mm Mm-hmm and I think that that's important. We need not just financial accountability, but spiritual accountability, mm-hmm. and this accountability is necessarily public. I think in context, um, and there's provisions in here for like in verse thirteen, where for if people don't have money, if they are unable to pay, there's ways there's ways around that. And I think I think it's also in section um, seventy five. We'll get to, verses 24, that if someone is unable to provide for their family while they're away on a mission, there needs to be help out for that. So I think this reflects the, uh, the gospel principle that all are alike unto God, that we are resisting the ways of the world, the ways of the world being greed and ind- uh, independence, financial independence and all these other things, that uh, competition... I think part of the gospel means we can just live differently. Mm-hmm. We don't have to live the way the world does. We mm-hmm. are an exception
0: to the way the world works. Mm. Great word. I think you said a while ago, uh, I think it was something along the lines of the spirit tells us which rules to break uh, when you talked about flexibility, uh, yeah. knowing the gospel so well that you know exactly you know what is practicable to the point where you can you know, follow a commandment at the expense of another or basically decide mm-hmm. that this commandment is not for you or rather. Yeah, there's just a lot. There's just a lot of layers there. And we've addressed this in the past, but I just wanted to bring that out, that this is something that has come up before in our discussion mm-hmm. of the Doctrine of mm-hmm. Covenants multiple times in our discussion of the scriptures. And that's something I want to make sure people pay attention to, because. Again, if it comes up multiple times, if it is repeated throughout the scriptures, it may be worth paying attention to and acknowledging in your own practice mm-hmm. of your faith. So, uh, was there anything else in 73 you wanted to address? No, nope, we... that's it. Okay, so now we're in 74. Uh, there's a couple things I found interesting in here. This is a commentary on a Corinthians. On Hold on, Corinthians. we need to pause. Okay. Has that happened before? Yes. Okay.
1: may actually end up needing to just hold this if this doesn't go, go right really easily.
0: All right. I think I'm just going to have to hold it. All right. <laughs> Sounds good.
1: Okay. Let's go back to the start of what you were doing.
0: All right, so uh, we're going to section 74, which is a uh, an explanation of 1 Corinthians 7.14. This is the uh, scripture that is traditionally used to justify uh, infant baptism. And uh, we have a conversation on the law of Moses as well. The teachings of Paul, where he talked about when it was appropriate and when it wasn't appropriate to expect people to live the law of Moses during a time of uh, contention among members of the church and new converts um so this particular point or what's going on what is this commentary let me get to this okay so starting in verse three came to pass that there arose a great contention among the people concerning the law of circumcision, for the unbelieving husband was desirous that his children should be circumcised and become subject to the law of Moses, which law was fulfilled. And it came to pass that the children being brought up in subjection to the law of Moses gave heed to the traditions of their fathers and believed not the gospel of Christ, wherein they became unholy. Wherefore, for this cause, the apostle wrote unto the church, this meaning Paul, giving unto them a commandment, not of the Lord, but of himself, that a believer should not be united to an unbeliever, except the law of Moses should be done away among them. So, I don't even know what the context of this revelation was. I can't really quite understand it, actually. Like, why exactly was this given. Like, in in terms of the chronology, I don't really understand it, and I don't really, like, we've already addressed the issue of infant baptism at this point. I don't know why this revelation is coming up at this particular point. Like, the context for the giving of this revelation is kind of mysterious. I don't know if you know anything about the historical context of this, if it makes any sense.
1: Right. Well, it appears that some individuals outside the church were using this one verse in... 1 Corinthians 7 to justify the practice of infant baptism saying like oh the the children will be sanctified through the, the parents right mm-hmm. and so maybe the children don't need to to believe before they're baptized maybe you can just baptize them any because they're somehow automatically something or other mm-hmm. I think that is the context of what's going on and this is where uh, Joseph received this revelation I want to quote from Dale Luffman's quite important commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants. Mm -hmm. Here's what he says. This is um, pages 322 and 323 of his commentary. He says, In the ferment of controversy and the novelty of theological doctrine and creativity that was extant in in the early 19th century, particularly on the frontier of North America, A number of doctrinal and scriptural questions were being asked. Many thought the ancient doctrines and creeds to be rigid and unnecessary. Issues such as election, original sin, the law of Moses, Christian freedom, the necessity necessity and mode of baptism, and many others were often critiqued. Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were immersed in such a world with beliefs informed by premillennialism, looming apocalyptic judgment, Christian primitivism, and Arminian orientations. They brought these perspectives to the task of biblical revision. Their hermeneutical presuppositions predisposed them to hope they would not only know how to read a passage or text, but also how they would interpret it in the process. They were not scholars, and they often read into the text meanings that came from their experience, projecting these views onto the text before them. Such appears to be the case in this text from 1 Corinthians. It is important to recognize as well that Joseph did not particularly consider his wording infallible. The evidence of editing and revising text for publication makes this plain. For him, God's language stood in a nebulous relationship to the human language of the prophets. So to summarize all of that, basically... Luffman is saying there's a lot of uh, Stuff floating in round in the air a lot of background a lot of Assumption a lot of controversies and all of this uh, Joseph and Sidney did the best they could to make sense of various things mm-hmm. and there's a distinction between God's language and the imperfect language of human uh, prophets And I think the reason this is the case is if you look at verse 6, there's something puzzling right here. It says in verse 6 that their children might remain without circumcision and that the tradition might be done away, which saith that little children are unholy, for it was had among the Jews. Now, there was no tradition in Second Temple Judaism, as far as I know of, that circumcision was necessary because of sin. Hmm. There was no tradition that little children are unholy. The Second Temple Judaism, as far as I know, is pretty uniform in saying that the the Talmud is very clear, although the Talmud is post-Second Temple, hmm. uh, that children receive their soul at birth pure and holy from God. It is. It comes to this world pure. And is it
0: because... Of the atonement, though, or is it just do they just come that way? Like, what oh, is they the, come that way
1: naturally in Judaism? I see. Yeah. In Judaism, got mm-hmm. it.
0: Because mm-hmm. I'm I'm asking questions as I read this as well. Because yeah. I'm wondering if the context comes from the Book of Mormon here. You know, the scriptures back in the Book of Mormon about uh, you know mortals being inherently evil, like it says in Second mm-hmm. Nephi chapter mm-hmm. two or Second Nephi four. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. So. The um, the statement that this t- tradition was had among the Jews that little children are unholy. I'm not. I have no idea where Joseph and Sydney Sydney are are uh, grafting that onto the uh, the text here. I don't know where they're getting that.
0: I'm gonna say it's from the Book of Mormon.
1: That's no. my that's my bet. Well, maybe that's what it is then. But my point <laughs> is that this is a um, not an accurate representation of Judaism of the time of first Corinthians. As mm-hmm. far as I know, we have no record of that in anywhere in the new Testament. This idea that children are born, uh, unholy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, yeah, that's kind of where I was going with that. And cool. I think this, uh, What Luffman is speaking to also speaks to what we've seen from Richard Howard—that the the comparison of the various texts, the pre-publication manuscripts, the Book of Commandments, the Book, uh, uh, and then the Doctrine and Covenants. When you look at all these texts combined, you realize they felt they they never of themselves felt that they were that their words were dictated from God like a text message. They played around with the wording. Mm-hmm it's very clear that it's not verbally inspired, that the words weren't given of God. Mm. It is, uh, they they had to put the words together themselves. And that leads to all sorts of human fingerprints all over the scriptures. And of course, this has implications. Like, yeah, the proclamation on the family is going to have human fingerprints all over it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that as an attack on them. If I wrote a statement, oh, it's going to have lots of, Derek's fingerprints all over it like you could read one of my proclamations and people would know I wrote it even mm-hmm. if my name's on it like the way that I speak and think is so distinct compared to others in the church you could tell something is mine right right yeah so I think this is the same thing here um and that's all I had to say about section 74 did you have any other thoughts or
0: Nah. We addressed uh, the questions that I had, so we can go ahead and...
1: uh, And I just wanted to say this um, in verse 5 where it says that Paul gave them a commandment not of the Lord but of himself. That reflects the language that we see in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says, um, I say not the Lord, where he teaches about what to do with an unbelieving spouse. Mm. And by that, I think Paul isn't saying, well paul's not saying that what he is saying is uninspired what he's saying is well this did not come from jesus's teachings while he was here on earth it's not Mm -hmm. from the gospels there's there's other teachings from from jesus uh that paul quotes the the living jesus in the flesh about divorce but then he teaches something else and saying well this i don't have uh a commandment from the earthly jesus on this so this is something new Mm. there's a lot of material in section 75 but I didn't have much to say how what do you have to say
0: oh 75 shoot I barely made it to 75 to be honest just I don't really have like 75 is where I ended because I don't really have anything to add to that conversation I did notice the law of consecration elements that were present in the end of this Mm -hmm. uh, because you know I mean you brought this up already but just how you know, the families of those who have been called on missions are basically to receive, uh, you know, help from the church. There's another, you know, just yet another law of consecration element. And I just wanted to make sure that I highlight those because for the last several weeks, there's been a law of consecration element present somewhere in the text that we're assigned to read. And that is worth. Highlighting mm-hmm, simply because mm-hmm. again this whole idea of repetition if it comes up multiple times, it's probably important and uh, we are yet again receiving a teaching that you know, not only highlights the law of consecration, but tells us how we are to care for other members of the church, uh, particularly when they have a need and in this particular case when they have uh, family members on missions So when we have, yeah you know, these families without, you know, their father's husbands around to give them financial support. The church is to uh, step in and to help out there because they're consecrating time. Therefore, we should consecrate uh, resources to those families.
1: Exactly. And the law of consecration is another brilliant counterexample to the, uh, oh, it'll all get fixed hereafter. <laughs> like, no, yeah. you've got to pull together in this life to fix things that, that, ought, that clearly can be fixed. Right. And we see this also very clearly in James chapter Two and First John Chapter Four about how you treat your neighbor and mm-hmm. that faith without works is dead, and you can't go up to someone and say oh i I wish that you are were fed and clothed and and then not actually do it right that's, right uh, and how can we say we love our neighbor and or how can we say we love God if we don't even treat our neighbor right that's right in first John four, and I think for me. I'm not going to go through the details, but section 75 is really powerful about preaching. It talks about the promises that the, the Lord will be with the missionaries, mm-hmm. that people should be in prayer, that they should not be afraid to get rejected from a house, mm-hmm. that needs will be provided for, that if you're faithful, you'll be rewarded with many uh, many things. And the one thing I want to do... Uh, or, or yeah verse 27 let them ask and they shall receive knock and it shall be opened unto them and be made known From on high even by the comforter whither they shall go The last thing I wanted to say was about verse 29 verse 29 says let every man be diligent in all things And the idler shall not have place in the church except he repent and mend his ways now this all things is not just Temporal things. It's mm-hmm. also spiritual things. We mm-hmm. should not be idle in our in our quest for spiritual self reliance. I think there's mm-hmm. a we've been culturally conditioned in the church to outsource all the spiritual work to someone else. Like, oh mm-hmm. we just the prophet's gonna do all the the heavy lifting theologically for us. We just
0: We just follow him. We just no don't questions. have to do anything
1: our, do, don't have to do any of the work ourselves. But it's kinda of like going to the gym, right? Like if if you go to the gym and I don't and I'm like, oh James is going to go to the gym for me. Well, that doesn't work because mm-hmm. now my body isn't improved and refined, mm-hmm. right? And I want to say about idleness, um, and now that could be used in, in, in an abusive way against people, like people who for some reason don't have access to resources or for whatever reason of disability can't mm-hmm. uh, acce- access something, right? Now that's different, but I'm talking about people who can access but choose to offload the labor that would go into forming themselves onto someone else. Mm -hmm. And I want to say to those people that if you want to learn spiritual self-reliance, look to queer members of the church because we, by definition, have to be spiritually self-reliant. I can't Mm -hmm. trust anyone to uh, speak authentically to the queer experience except uh, someone who's queer, Mm -hmm. right? There's people who don't know what's going on um, and they don't even pretend to know what's going on
0: Mm.
1: and because of that i need to be spiritually self-reliant so now i hope people will be patient with me if i'm making mistakes or if i seem to go outside the bounds or whatever reason part of it is yeah give me a break because i'm having to do this largely on my own so please give me the same grace i would give to anyone else who's who's in the same situation of not having it all spelled out and spoon fed for them.
0: Also part of following the prophet that I'm, I really like, I forgot who taught this to me, but part of like following the prophet isn't necessarily offloading our spiritual, uh, journey onto them, but in essence, also doing what they would do to cultivate a spiritual mm, relationship, mm, mm, uh, with, yeah. uh, you know, with God. Um, I'm not going to say like, Joseph Smith once said that there's nothing that the Lord has revealed to him that the Lord won't also reveal to us Right, but in most Mm -hmm. cases we have to do the same work that the Prophet had to do to you know Get that we have to do our own prayer. We have to do our own searching. We have to do our own uh, Research meditation and prayer to build the kind of relationship and to gain the kind of knowledge That uh, the Prophet has received now. That's not to make it sound impossible or difficult. It just it's just work like What the prophet does in order to get revelation on behalf of the church is work. Mm -hmm, Therefore, mm -hmm. it stands to reason that the revelation or the work, it stands to reason that for us to get revelation for our own families, for our own lives, that requires work. You know, we're not supposed to just offload, as you said, everything that we're supposed to do onto the prophet, especially when they're telling us and they have told us since the founding of the church, that's not actually what we want you to do. Everything, every bit of information that we give you, every commandment that we give you, you have to prove that too. Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. That is something that we have been deliberately instructed to do, both by modern day prophets and uh, ancient, and the ones in the scriptures. Uh, that's mm-hmm. in essence what Moroni's promise is. And uh, you know, I think I quoted Brigham Young last week to basically say the same thing. We have to prove all things, and in situations like yours, Derek, the prophet isn't necessarily a- asking those questions, or maybe he's not ready to receive answers to those questions. So you do have to, in essence, venture off on your own to ask the questions that you know you have to ask because the uh-huh. prophet hasn't right. been forced to ask those questions. So yeah, you deserve every bit of that grace because you're especially basically, because
1: I've said this many times before. In the end, whether I'm right or wrong, I'm gonna be the one that's accountable for those things, those teachings or those choices that I make. I'm the one that's gonna bear the cost, so let me Mm -hmm. make those decisions. You know, let's go back to talking about following the prophet because I don't think we in the church have really thought critically about what that means. What does Mm -hmm. it mean to follow the prophet? Does it mean to be a robotic duplicate of the prophet? Because that can't be what it means. I think to follow the prophet means to go where the prophet's going. And the prophet's pointing and, and uh, journeying towards Christ. Mm. And as long as we go towards Christ, we're following the prophet, right? Mm. Because we're going where the prophet's going. That's what following is. Imagine, here's the um, sort of parable. Imagine that you want to uh, buy me ice cream, right? And you say, Derek, follow me in your car uh, to this ice cream place. Now, as I'm following you and you're driving, you go through a green light and then a pedestrian walks across the the way and I have to stop. Mm-hmm. Now you didn't stop and I had to stop. That's because the, the details on the ground were different. To literally follow you means that I would have to run over this pedestrian if I do exactly what you do. So I think that's really what I'm saying is that when we follow the prophet, it's going to look different for every person because we're all going to Christ. We're all following the prophet towards the destination of Christ but the bumps along the way and the way that it works out for the individual depending on what's practicable and what actually works and what what is uh, the personal revelation how that gets th- put into the mix it's going to look in detail different mm-hmm. so i honestly think i am following the prophet in that sense of the word like i'm not trying to go a different place than the prophet is I think a lot of it doesn't it doesn't say idolize the prophet it says follow the prophet I'm following the prophet we're both going in the same place hmm but I'm not gonna idolize the prophet I'm not gonna worship the prophet I'm not going to teach the false doctrine that the prophets are infallible or perfectly understand God's will and I'm not saying I perfectly understand God's will either we both share in this work of Christ
0: Brilliantly put, Derek. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about uh, following the prophet or uh, or uh, the law of consecration piece that is present in uh, section 75? Nope, five? that's it. Okay, then let's wrap up because we're at like 110. Amazingly, I don't know how we did it yet again, but, you know, with very little to say, we somehow managed to say more than we needed to or more than we intended to. No,
1: I always say more than I needed to. <laughs>
0: We're all here for it, I guarantee you. By the time this episode comes out, they see the length or they see how much we've actually spoken. They're going to be like, wish you would have kept talking. We're here for it. Everybody's here for it. Um, but yeah, before we go ahead and wrap up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally and the second is dialogue book report which has discussion reviews and interviews about current lds fiction nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases listen to these new shows and the dialogue lecture series by subscribing on itunes or at dialoguejournal.com journal.com slash podcast network that's dialogue journal.com slash podcast network uh, brother derek where can people find us
1: you can find us on instagram and twitter at btblds You can also find us on Facebook and at Mm beyondtheblockpodcast.com.
0: Also, thank you to everybody who participated in uh, our Father's Day event, Ask Derek. We'll hope to be able to do uh, do some more of those soon. Uh, Obviously, at Derek's discretion because, you know, he got to do this, not me. Yeah, that was (laughs) fun. I liked it. I like (laughs) being put in the hot seat and getting
1: questions. Yes. So you know, maybe we'll try to do this. Maybe we'll try on a to do that basis or something somehow, and and figure out. And what we did was kind of practice anyway, and figure out. Well, what's a better way of making it more accessible? Uh, is there are there things that we should be doing differently? Um, how do we advertise it better? Maybe next time we'll make a Facebook event so that people can have uh, spread it that way. Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about this beforehand, but I want to talk a little bit about. I want to do a book group where we go through Blair Ostler's Queer Mormon Theology and Introduction. I think it's a really great book. I would love to spend like a weekly book group um, where we spend one week on each chapter for however I think uh, for, for about eight weeks I think and then we will uh yeah i think that would be good i'm gonna host that on zoom somehow i'd like to start it the i don't want to start it on uh the 4th of july because that would be bad (laughs) let's start it the sunday after so be looking out for that look out on our socials for the details of that it's probably going to be sunday evenings starting sunday july 11th i'll get back to you with the exact time and the exact uh format but this gives people a chance to put that on their schedules and order the book if they have not ordered it
0: yet Mm. and also reminder that uh, Derek and I will be hosting a his name is green flake watch party on July 2nd still don't have the exact time of that but it will be on July 2nd in the evening I think it's going to be around like 6 or 8 p.m mountain time I forget which one it is Uh, but there is a watch party I believe tomorrow well, gosh! Well, by the time this passes, um, they will have had a watch party with sisters in Zion uh, on Saturday the twenty-sixth, which I think is actually Pioneer Day, which is pretty. <laughs> let me let me Google this real quick. Make sure I, don't I thought it was the twenty-fourth was Pioneer is it the 24th? Day. Twenty-fourth? When is Pioneer Day? I don't know, but I'm a pioneer, so I should get on that. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, the twenty-fourth. Or July 24th, goodness. Oh, yeah, July. Okay, so scratch that. Let me try that yeah, again. Yeah,
1: all, uh, <laughs> all of these days are getting, especially with pandemic in the summer, Like even knowing what month it is, it's pretty hard. And the weather's changing here. The weather is so erratic here in uh, in Massachusetts. It was cold and hot in the same day. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's getting hot. I'm going to have to start wearing mesh garments. Went from
0: like 57 yeah. degrees to 80 or 90. It's weird.
1: Yeah, you know mesh garments are the holiest.
0: I don't want to know why.
1: Because they have the most holes.
0: <sighs> wow. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I know it's coming. I know it's coming. <laughs> hate everything. I hate everything. Um, okay, let me just run that back again. <laughs> July 2nd, Derek and I will be hosting a His Name is Green Flake watch party. That is uh, this Saturday? Is July 2nd a Friday or Saturday? This is why I need my July 2nd outside. is a Friday okay July 2nd is a Friday so this Friday join Derek and I we will put the link up for the uh actual link there where you can join us the uh, virtual link where you can join us in the watch party uh, be on the lookout for that we'll make sure it goes on both our Instagram and our Facebook pages anything else Derek
1: yeah why was um why was Abraham the smartest man in the Bible why Derek because he knew a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. At least I saw it coming. I was like, at least I, I didn't know the answer. But knew it was gonna be yeah. a joke. Yes, the punch is easier to absorb when you see it coming. Uh oh. So, yeah, I need to. I need to work on the surprises. Yes, Derek didn't work very hard on his surprises this week, so I was ready. But I know that Derek is just going to come with it harder next week. And the best I can do is prepare, but I know I won't be ready because I am terrible at seeing these jokes coming. I know. Well. Anyway, on that note, (laughs) thank you all for joining us this week. Till we meet again next week.
1: Okay, till we meet again next week. Bye-bye.